Good evening and welcome to Dog, the first Dog Talk to twenty for 2024. I'm Dan Camilleri. And I'm Laura McKillop. We'd like to start by thanking Enduro for their ongoing support in bringing you our fortnightly Q&A. Tonight we're fortunate to be speaking with Stefan Cross from Echo Park Working Dogs. How you going, sir? Yeah, not too bad, thanks. No, that's awesome, mate. What did today see you do, mate? Today, um, mainly it was 41 degrees here. We're still tidying up the ends of harvest, shifted to the last block and uh, reaping some wheat. Uh, took it a bit steady in the middle of the day because of the fire danger and then, yeah, keep on going. So. Uh, cool. and, and you mentioned down there, where's home, mate? Uh, Strathalbyn. Um, where, yeah, South Australia's um, probably 50, 50 minutes south of Adelaide. And, uh, yeah, a lot of people know Victor Harbour down on the coast. Yep. We're about 30 minutes uh, east of that. So not uh, six kilometres off of Lake Alexandrina, which is the end of the mighty Murray system. So, Beautiful spot in the world. Yeah. Sounds right. Like it is. It is a postcard. The whole town, I reckon. It all makes sense. <laughs> it's beautiful. We don't know any different. Grew up here. So. <laughs> nah, that's good. And just on that, not knowing any different, mate, so you've been there for quite some time? Yeah, I was born three k's across the paddock. Um, <laughs> I bought my the farm off my uncle, which was my grandfather's farm, which was his father's farm before that. So it was 1902. Um, all no, managed scrub, all managed scrub and all, all being cleared and now farmed. So, oh, wow. yeah. Yeah. That, that'd make you fourth generation, then is that correct? On that property, um, I think so. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it has to be. Yep, yep, yeah, yeah. that's a pretty cool. Story. Yeah, right, 1902. Well, that's uh, 122 years in itself. Yep. That's awesome, mate. How, like you mentioned about it getting cleared and that, like, so when, how long has it been farmed for? Um, well, that probably, uh, probably took them 20, 30, 20, 30 years to get the majority of it cleared. And then, like, they still were tidying up, um, picking stumps, picking rocks. It was all manual labor. Grandpa had four sons. So that, that helped that out a bit. Um, yeah, so that's uh, a lot of labour and then, yeah, well, in my time there's a still a stump jump plough parked in the scrub or something like that as a reminder, but it's all been tractors and machinery in my time, so. Yeah. And in your time, like, obviously having such, like, so acquainted for so, so long, how has the stock handling practices evolved? Like, have you... Well, the first question is probably, what do you guys do on your property? Oh, yeah, well, sorry, yeah, we should ask yeah. that first. Yeah, um, we mainly, we, we crop and sheep. Um, there's a lot of people in the district that just continuous crop, but I've, we previous aunt, uh, uncles and dad and grandpa, they were, they were religious fine wool sheep men. So the sheep came first and the sheep stayed. Um, I I had a bit of a uh, headed towards the cropping a bit. I liked the cropping, but I didn't want to do away with my sheep. So I run a Bay Medic sub clover based pasture system, which 
puts nitrogen in the ground for the next crop. So instead of growing a grain legume crop as a break crop, I just grow um, medics, clovers and stuff and run the sheep on them. So mm -hmm. provides a uh, very good feed. So, so you stayed on the property like your entire life? Like did you ever go away and come back or? No, I left, left school at 15 and uh, worked in every job I could find around the place. Uh, my grandpa had a quite a sizable farm for the time, but with so many boys and they'd just come out of the 1950s wool boom. And I think he thought that if each lad had 500 do uh, acres each, that was going to be fine. And then the 60s and 70s and 80s hit and it wasn't very viable at all. So yeah, come home on the farm, did a lot of odd job work and ended up shearing for 15 years, shear farming. Uh, when I got married, Simone uh, and I bought in here the uncle's farm, um, he retired. And uh, yeah, I think we bought five places since. So we started with 400 acres and now got 2,000 that we own. Oh, beautiful. Good on you. That's awesome. And are they all adjoined or is it a bit of travelling at once? Yeah, no, they all, they all unbelievably, uh, we bought a block last year and we bought a block two years before that and the one two years before that actually joined up. Oh, beautiful. The missing, missing link. So, yeah, we can drive from one end to the other um, without having to go on the road if we wanted to. Yeah. Yeah. A bit easier to get to work, right? Yeah, well, it's very good with sheep. Like, um, you just sort of, as, as shearing comes up, you just move mobs closer and closer and closer and, you know, like drive them for two or three k's into another paddock or whatever and then leave them and, you know, two days later, by the time shearing comes, they're all around nearby and then the opposite happens after shearing. Yeah. That sort of thing, so... Uh, we shear in April, so the the whole farm is open. But like in like for a lot of the year, there's a fair bit under crop. Um, you got to be careful you don't crop yourself out of <laughs> out of uh, access. Like you could if you put. We did it last year actually, and we had a heap of sheep right up the top end of the farm, and we we did crutching up there and got a. Like a oh well, Lee Micken come and did my crutching actually, mm -hmm. and we did all that up there, and we we got by, but it was a bit of a nuisance not being able to sort of bring them down yeah, to some yeah. other paddocks. So. Yeah, yeah. And how much of that is originally like the properties you bought? How much of that, or is any of it, the original property that your grandfather had? Yeah, um, I, I bought. The original place off one uncle and then i bought the place next door with another uncle um yeah. dad was married late in life he was 37 when he got married so time i left school and my brother as well um they were sort of looking to wind down retire and which also the two uncles next door had no kids mm -hmm. so one was a bachelor one married very late so it sort of opened up the access to a bit of share farming or a bit of whatever them and then eventually a bit of leasing and then eventually buying it so which is uh, very satisfying to be able to 
keep it in the family, but uh, very expensive at the same time. <laughs> yeah, is there another parcel to add to it, mate, which makes it collect, or is that all of it done? No, nah, I think that's that's about all that'll that'll happen. So, yeah. yeah. But yeah. Uh, we also lease um, oh, about uh, seven hundred and about 800 acres we lease and share farm a bit extra as well off of other people, so. Yep, yep. So obviously you had the fine wool sheep around you and everything. Is that where the dogs started or was that later in life? No, nah, dogs, my dad, I guess my dad always was a dog trainer and lover, in, but never... Um, Never, never spent a cent to get one, if you know what I mean. So, like, if someone had a dog, he'd get one out the pound or if someone had have a stray or whatever, and he'd get that dog and he turned into a fairly handy sheep dog. Um, but nothing once uh, the trial dogs were around and seen, uh, his dogs weren't, weren't uh, up to that level, of course. But just, you could... The, the trial dogs around were bred, bred for a purpose. They're, they're bred to be the best. And I think they're easier to train to a level than getting a dog out the pound. Like, so, yeah. So I always grew up with dogs and, you know, loved dogs. And that was, uh, yeah. They were all, uh, the three brothers, my father and his two brothers, or my two uncles, their farms all still adjoined, so it was a real family environment that uh, dipping, for instance, back in the day when it was compulsory dipping, dipping was a joint effort. Each each brother brought their sheep to a central dip and we all just worked together and dipped yep. and shearing sometimes and go and help each other out. And like So uh, seed grading, all those jobs that required labour, like sort of, they were all done jointly. Any, any, any so, competitions when you're doing that joint stuff with, oh, look at this dog here and look at my dog? Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, nah, nothing nothing like that at that stage. Like uh, my uncle who owned the farm we bought, he spent three days down at the Malang Dog Trial in the 80s, I think, uh, letting sheep go, and one of the trialers gave him a pup, which probably sort of a bit where it started. So from that pup, he bred a pup, gave to my brother, uh, Milton, and he he took that to a couple of encouraged trials or something, and my uncle had a bit of a go, nearly penned on one occasion. Um, another influence, I suppose, into the trialling game was uh, about... 10, 8 k's as the crows fly was uh, Malcolm Sorrell, who uh, his claim to fame, I suppose. He bred Sarego Joe, which was Lou Noble's great dog. And uh, when I was a kid, he was, we stopped and watched him trial on, at the Adelaide show. And, you know, he was the local guy that was going off to trials and never really expected to do that myself. But. <laughs> Life is funny, isn't it? Absolutely. And, and having, like, such a tight-knit family there like, and all working around, 
Like, did you, was there any change in the way you guys handled stock back then and your dogs to the way you handled them now? Yeah, well, um, yeah, they were commands and that sort of thing were, you know, like it was the old, no, don't get back that way. I told, I want you to get back the other way, you know, like it was not, no, no side commands really as such, but yeah, just, they're all well trained and 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 for what they ask of them. But mm-hmm. uh, um, Uncle lived here when I was only ten or twelve. Like he, the passion for fine wool sheep was such that everyone who turned up had to go and have a look at the latest ram. So he yeah. walk out the back door and say to his dogs, "Should we have a look at the rams?" And they'd just go, "Bang!" Out they'd go. Round up out to the front paddock, round up the rams, bring them into the corner, and they'd all have a bit of a look at the wall and carry on a bit and look out. That one's better than that one. Probably a bit like we do with dogs, young pups. <laughs> yeah, very similar, first. I guess it is, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Do you remember your first dog, like the first one you actually owned? Yeah, the first dog I had was a uh, Border Collie Kelpie Cross. Um, I got her when I was 14. I remember she had no cast at all. I taught her to back. I taught her a lot of things. Um, we were building a shed at the time. I taught her to climb up the ladder to a 14 foot high shed and she'd come up the ladder to you. And if you wrap the hammer or something in her collar, she'd bring that up. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, um, she had no real cast. I remember spending ages running with her, trying to drag her out around, trying to get her to cast. And uh, I succeeded in the end. But yeah. So Did you she ever was. Come? Sorry. Okay. No, she was just she was just a good all round farm dog, a pushy yard dog sort of thing. Not not a lot of finesse, but sort of my best best mate up until. Till I was 24 or 5, I think. So. Yeah. Mm. And when you were shearing, were you working dogs in that time or were you just purely shearing? No, I used to. Well, all the shearing I ever did was within like 25 minutes of home. We used to, being seasonal um, here, we'd crop, put the crop in, uh, finish about July, start. First shed was the first week of July. We'd shear from July to October, just when they'd start good crossbred shearing, we'd have to knock off and do hay and harvest and all that sort of thing. So I sure a lot of weathers, uh, a lot of triple bar neck merinos. Um, but yeah, I learned a lot. I learned a lot of other farms and like what to do and what not to do. And, you know, you sort of go to, and we'd, we'd go back again to shear the lambs and we'd go back again to do the crutching in March and April. So you were sort of either never far away from these places and they were sort of really good. They sort of took in like one of the family a bit and, uh, yeah. you know, yeah. told you what was working for them and what wasn't working for them. And, and sometimes... Especially just... so, so close to home too. It'd be great to have other mentors, sort of friends and farmers around that, help you as you were growing up and then taking on your own property oh yeah no it was it was the contacts through shearing and and what 
what I saw pretty observant, I suppose, but I saw plenty what to do and I saw plenty what not to do. Sorry, I was just going to tap in on that. Like you mentioned, like you learned, um, like experience of like what to do and what not to do. And like, was that based on like some of your own experiences or also like the mentors of out there as well or people showing you different ways of doing things? Oh, yeah. Well, people, everyone thinks they're doing everything right, else they wouldn't be doing it. That, but And no one does anything wrong on purpose. But you'd just go from place to place and you'd see. I mean, one thing I swapped on my farm pretty swiftly was uh, uh, July lambing, like the, the traditional lambing in May here, which, number one, when I was working on my own, I had the crop, like May is seeding time, it's by the calendar. So you start Anzac Day and you start seeding and and blokes were having uh, lambs. I was having lambs then and sometimes it hasn't even rained. The season hasn't broken. So you're trying to lamb ewes on a paddock of nothing, spend half the day carting them hay when you should be um, seeding because the time is critical. And I swapped to July lambing and because I saw that while I was shearing somewhere and thought, gee, how good is this? What was I doing it the other way for? So, yeah. yeah. And how long have you been doing that, that for now? That, that's just one example of one thing that you pick up. So, absolutely. How long ago was that? Um, I probably was 20, 28. So, yeah, oh, 25 years ago, probably. Yeah. So, just like in that last 25 years, how more efficient did your time get somewhere else? based on just a, a little decision like that of witnessing something, that's pretty cool. Oh, the, the, you could never add up the money. You just made just by, one, getting your crop in on time, two, your, your sheep are way more fertile by being mated um, later up in the, apparently the merino sheep, when the days get shorter, it, she gets more fertile. So, yeah. like, as soon as we started July lambing, the twins started coming thick and fast and, uh, yeah, but you, you've got to feed on one end or the other in this country. Like, you're either going to feed the ewe or you're going to feed the lamb. So we were feeding the lamb on our grain stubbles and then that developed into um, building a feedlot, um, which we put them in there when feed run out and now... We've got the system work that uh, we actually creep feed lambs uh, while their mother's there. So there's grain in the paddock, but the mother can't get to it, which stimulates the rumen. And then when we wean, we just wean straight in into the feedlot on the grain. So we're turning lambs out probably two months earlier. Yeah. Yeah. Our last load of lambs. <laughs> Uh, a week ago, we sold lambs, uh, July drop lambs, they were 28.5 kilo. Fresh. That's really cool. I've never heard or of that. Or for one little so, decision, changed yeah. everything, right? And probably without making that decision, maybe the feedlot didn't happen. Sorry, what was that? If Maybe without making that decision, the feedlot didn't happen when it did either. No, that's right. That's right. And then once it's built, then all of a sudden we had a dry year and we used it for a drought lot and put all the ewes in there and fed, took the hay to them instead of them running all around, uh, yeah. causing erosion, dust in the wall. Yeah, they just walk and the 
paddocks looking for feed. So, you know, like each little step uh, helps you along the way and you find another benefit. So, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Man, and what about your, your current team of dogs? Like, what, what have you got there at the moment? Uh, I've got the four open dogs, which uh, uh, Lady and Baz are out of um, Sandy, who was a dog I got back, a fellow called John McSkimming. Had her for a couple of years. Um, she was bred, she was a double cross of Connie, which was my best Australian rep dog I had. Um, and Sam, Sandy was a bit of a naughty dog and she busted out over a kennel one night and left her front leg behind. But she'd won, she'd won an open, she'd won an open trial before she did that. She also just missed out. I beat myself by a point in a tux uh, little uh, short course trial year after when she was on three legs because there was no car. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, she's the mother of Lady and Bazza and they're by Wandara Snap, which is Mick's dog. Uh, Mick got uh, Echo Park Mel. Yeah. And uh, Connor McConnell's got uh, Echo Park Glen, which... Uh, those four dogs all came out of the one litter. And they're all open dogs, aren't they? Yep. Yep. Yeah. I, I can't vouch for the other dog. I've seen Mel my at Mick's place many a times and she's a cracking little dog there. Yeah. Yeah. No, she's a good dog. And yeah, uh, yeah the other two dogs, one one is out of the same bitch, Sandy, um, by a Dog I got off of Carolyn Bell, Bellevue Rex, who it was. Um, and then the, Laura is, uh, I bought off a farm, bottom of York Peninsula, a guy called Morris Bennett had her. And Morris actually got Connie's sister when we, they two came from Doug Connor. So Laura's a descendant, but about five or six generations back. So, yeah. Oh, wow. So they're the four open dogs at the moment. I've got a got two more to start, hopefully at Port Ferry in the novice. Hopefully, um, yeah. One of them is one of them is by Baza out of a dog called Spot, which I bred. It's a double cross of Malcolm Taylor's line. Um, so yeah, and. Uh, Ollie's out of it, that double cross Taylor bitch, and he's by the Bellevue Rex that I got from Carolyn Bell. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, that Bellevue Rex was a bit of a handful, but um, what my, I'm probably more interested in breeding dogs than than training them. <laughs> I'm a bit yeah. of a lazy trainer, but I I, I can relate. I think that uh, we've trained dogs too much and we've fixed too many faults. And so I'm trying to breed better dogs with more desire to work. And Rex had plenty of desire to work, so I sort of brought him in. Um, I think to get, take it back to a sheep scenario, when you're breeding rams or whatever, you want to buy one a little bit uglier than you want if you know what I mean. And I think dog size need to be probably a little bit more full on than we want. Otherwise it yep. sort of weakens down a bit. But yep. 
just my experience. So, so when you're looking to pick a pup or, or a going dog or something, what are you looking for in that for you to buy it? Well, going by my track record, I just walk away and hide <laughs> and leave it to Simone and the girls and <laughs> and everybody because I am the worst pick of a pup you'll ever find. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the two Australian rep dogs that I had, besides Lady, I was allocated um, okay, out, of Baz, out of the Baz, Lady, Mel, Glen Litter. I picked a black and white dog that uh, couldn't even get to work. <laughs> fortunately, I kept this other one, Lady, in reserve, and. Uh, Lucky yeah. you did. And Daniel took over. Daniel took on Bazza. He was going to train Bazza, but with football and school and that sort of thing, Bazza was sort of too good to let go to waste. So we did a bit of a deal and then I took the two of them on. So, so how long have you had your own line then? Oh, <clears throat> I was very fortunate that Doug Connor went up well. To go back a step, I was very fortunate that four years after trialling, I was found myself in the Australian team with Lou Noble, Malcolm Taylor and Doug Connor. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> like it was the masters and an apprentices. So but Doug had a dog there that I just loved, which was uh Christie's Polar. And another dog that was a handful, but it, it just had awesome work and I loved it. And I said, well, can I have a pup? And anyway, when six months later, he says, I've got a pup for you. I've got a pup for you. And that was uh, Lenby Connie. So she went on to represent four times. So oh, wow. what an effort. you've mentioned there a few times the Australian team and repping. For those that don't know, how many times have you repped for South Australia and then gotten through and repped for Australia? Because... You'd have to be one of the higher number ones, wouldn't you? Yeah, um, 13 times I've repped and I've got through seven times into the Australian team. Oh, wow, what an effort. Um, yeah, I had, I did it six times in 12 years with the first two dogs. And then, uh, yeah, when the kids were a bit little, I was a bit burnt out too. I'd been chasing dog of the year points and because our state does dog of the year is our, how we select our reps so you you do chase the dog of the year points all year and then you got to go to the supreme and then you got to go to new zealand and you know like while i i would never knock back the opportunities to do it when the kids were little i sort of buttoned off a bit and mm -hmm. uh you know didn't really i kept i made sure and keep my breed going um and then when yeah about the time i could see they were starting to get the old plates and turn 16 and wouldn't have to be driven somewhere and i thought Geez, i might be able to get back and have a crack at this again and that's when i uh contacted mick to do the mating to snap with the sandy and produce lady and bats and yeah so way well, gone again so and your kids seem quite involved with the property and your dogs, is that correct? Yeah, yeah, no, they are um, uh, having two and a half thousand acres of crop in this area is very, very, we're very pushed. We have, we're right by the coast. Um, 
we have a very small harvest window and we have a very small spraying window. So when it when it's time to go, it's time to go. And I can sit on a tractor and not not look at a dog for three weeks or something and the kids and Simone and that they all look after them for me, which without that I wouldn't be in the sport because yeah. um yeah, I, I I just can't find the time to feed and run them. But they and, they take care of that. So and, and those three weeks, is that a hard three weeks for you being away from your dogs or, like in the training or do you look at it and go, it's a bit of a bit of you time and all you have to do is like be driving straight lines and bit Oh no that they'll um that because we're so intensive, like there's always mobs to shift, even um seeding time. You know, like you spray the paddock off, but there's this much dying grass there, so you put 500 sheep in there for three days and they eat that, and then you pull in with the sprayer and the cedar, and uh, then you got to move those sheep on, you see, so they get moved on. So you're still working your dogs quite often. Um, yep. It's just you, you, you just... Day-to-day side of it. Yeah, you might just grab one for 20 minutes, shift them off a sheep, put him back in the kennel and... Off you go in a truck or a tractor or something. Mm-hmm. Um, pretty long days, you know. Like it's not so bad now. Daniel's home from school, but it was I used to spray most days and see till twelve, one, two o'clock at night for oh, like months, six weeks. Um, Take a yeah. out of it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I don't need much sleep. I'm lucky like that. So. I don't know whether it's a fact or whether it's a condition of what I was doing. But then, yeah, every so often you'll get a wet day or something you can't sow, so then you catch up a bit or tear off down the paddock and try and sort the sheep out. So. Yeah. And you mentioned before that you um, you like breeding your dogs. What is it about breeding that you like and enjoy? Uh, I think it's just the, the challenge of it. Um, uh, I've sort of, I've got a particular type of dog in mind that I, I want to breed. Um, I'm pretty fussy. I, a lot of dogs don't turn me on, to be honest. No offence to anyone, but, like, that's just, I, I need a sort of a balls-to-the-wall sort of dog that pushes me to the limit because I think that's how you get end up with the best dog, the dog that's pushing against you a bit is also the one that's going to push against the sheep as well. Um, I'm a big bloke with a lot of presence too, so the, the soft-natured dogs don't don't suit me that well. Yep. So I like to like to get them um, get them uh, and put them knock them into shape if you know, like not physically, but to get them how I want. I go to trials. I can sit in a trial and I hear people say, oh, that dog arcs nicely. Look at that. That dog arcs nicely. And I, I'm sitting there thinking, I don't want a dog to arc. I, 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 want, I want to be able to put the arc in them. Yeah. I want them to come in tight and grip grip their sheep. Um, so you're obviously taking your work dogs to trials and vice versa. Yep. yep. So Lady and Baz, like, they go to work with you. Yep. Yeah. Yep. No. Just in the last little while, I've slackened off a little bit with them because the next two are coming up. Um, I've never really had a lot of open dogs. 
like one, maybe two was all I've ever had before. And, you know, Connie did exceptionally well at what she did, but she was really my only dog. She just did everything all the time. She had that much power and grip that you could put her on 400 sheep and she would push them anywhere you wanted. You could then put them in the yards and she would back all day for you. Um, oh, wow. And, uh, yeah, so she part of the bond I had with her was that we were working all day every day and we'd just go to a trial and, and after, she was a handful for a start, but after a few trials, like after a few years, it was sort of like, oh, we're in trial mode, I, I better be gentle or she'll cut cook at me. Right. <laughs> and that, oh, well, I meant there, that was not disrespectful at all. What I was by that was there's not many open three sheep trial dogs that you hear going to work and backing races or backing sheep yeah that's um yeah i took lady and laura they had a little utility type trial down at the south coast here during the year and uh i i thought oh well i might have a go at that because my dogs can do that sort of thing and um i made made it sure before i went Laura can back very well. She's quite agile and lady's not a backer, but a very good side worker through the, like, works the side. Yeah. Really well. And they said, no, you can work the side if you want. So um, they finished first and second in that. So. Oh, wow. Awesome. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank no. you. No, it is. Like, it's, I love that someone that is so has done the most prestigious thing in a three sheep then goes, oh, let's go throw them in a utility. Like, yeah. Not a lot of people would do that. Yeah. I I expect them to do whatever I want, really. Like, if, I mean, uh, to me, working outside in the paddock and working in the yards, that just that's just the one job as far as I'm yeah. concerned. Like, they're, they're the dog. I'm there to open the gates and that's it. Yeah. Do you think being able to take them to work makes a difference to your dogs? Uh, it, there's two sides to that coin because, as I mentioned, like my dogs, the rare time that they'll get any specific three sheep training or whatever, usually we're flat out on the farm, we pack the caravan, or Simone packs the caravan, yeah. and we hook on, sometimes we hook on it like, eight o'clock at night or something like that to drive to a trial. And uh, as I'm driving out the front paddock, there's three sheep there for an obstacle and I might spend half an hour, put, put them around and give them like two or three minutes on three sheep to tie, tidy them up and away we go. Yeah, that's, yeah. You know, <laughs> that's cool. <laughs> um, uh, it's You've got to um, work your farm with three sheep trialling in mind though. So if you cast onto a mob of sheep, you make sure they stop at the point of balance and you make sure they lift, even though it's 400 sheep, you make sure they stop and you make sure they lift. Like it's it's still training for trials, but it's not in the little paddock. So while I'm busy, they get a lot of general work and, they, and things happen on the farm that you can't make up when you're trying to train a dog, you know, like a... One sheep will get its head caught in cyclone and get left behind from the other mob or something and you put your dog around and try and push it out from, or go, one takes off in the scrub or whatever. You can't 
plan for that. You can't train that when you got your little mob next to your house. But on the other side, the those with the little mob near their house, and I've got some and a bridge near my house. But um, you know, those with plenty of time and the training obsession, or I tend to call it, that, like they they got all that time to to do and go over so much stuff. But then those strange things don't crop up, yeah. and they're great learning experiences for dogs, like because they learn to trust you. Like and if, problem solving. Yeah, and problems. Sometimes it's them problem solving, and you just got to lead them to it. And sometimes you've got to say, "No, go on, get back in that scrub." There's a sheep back in there, you know. And when they find the sheep, then they go, "Oh, this guy does know what he's on about." So, <laughs> yeah. So when you're looking, like when you've got a nice bitch and you're looking for an outside sire, um, and you like a dog with a bit of a, a sire with a that's a little over the top, um, are you like, and someone being extremely busy, are you say um, relying on somebody's word and their version of that dog is like that, or do you try and make the time to to go and see that dog yourself with your own eyes? Um, generally. Yeah, I get to see a lot of dogs at the. I've been going to the Supreme nearly every year, so in every state, and I was just, I'm just as keen to watch the novice as I am the Open. At, in that sort of scenario, I, in the last few years, I've sort of thought, you know, like I need to, because of how I am, I need to keep clear of the lines of people that are training all the time, you know, like because then. The natural's gone out of it. Um, I said to someone on our New Zealand trip, I forget who it was. I think they thought I was being rude, but like Greg Prince was a great trainer and his schools everywhere developed and helped a lot. But I think he, I think by teaching us how to fix faults, I think we went on and bred from those faults, if you know what I mean. Like, yeah. Um, you know, like if a dog's not balancing properly and put the rake out, get him around the balance, do that 200 times, next thing he's going to balance, right, he's a good dog. He scored 95 at the open trial, we better breed from him. You know, like so, and no, nothing against Greg, but the, the more we develop our training, the less natural is is left in the dogs. So yeah, we're, we're training those faults out. Yeah, but then we're breeding them. Genetically. Yeah, so you, you've got to fix one dog, but the next generation you might have to fix 15 dogs. Yeah. So are you finding then you're using more work dogs that are also trying, like you're trying to find that, that happy medium between the two? Yeah, well, that was part of the interest in uh, going to get uh, Laura from, like, from basically farm stock. Um, I, I I went down and saw Morrison. Yeah, he he been I've been line breeding back to Connie's line because I loved it so much, and he'd been out crossing all the time. And I come home and I said, I reckon he's got more the type of dog that I've been looking for than been trying to breed than I have. You know, <laughs> and that's, that's just how it, just how it works. So, and then uh, what was it? Six months ago, he took a pup back. So he took a pup from Laura 
buy Baz back mm -hmm. to his place. So there's sort of a bit of swapping going on. Yeah. And, and are you breeding that type of pup you want now more consistently? Yeah, yeah. I think I think they are coming out more and more that, uh, yeah. Um, you know is yeah, you know is by Bellevue Rex out of Sandy and we mated her to Pip Hudson's dog Rocky Sky and uh, <clears throat> yeah Pip loves his and I got two here going pretty well and uh, yeah, I think one's up in oh one's up in Queensland with Jacko yeah, yeah. but yeah they, they sort of I think they're they're turning out more because I've, I've sort of more hard-nosed on what what I want. Um, uh, essentially, I suppose I want a trans-Tasman dog more than I want a trial dog. Um, they're, they're two very different. I believe they're two very different dogs. Um, Can you trans, I, I've had a lot of trans-Tasman success, um, but I, I was a nobody when I got in the Australian team. Like, I hadn't won an open trial. I made placings. I came to Vanilla. I've been trialling four years since I started, but only seriously a couple of years. Just a stockman and come in, finish top of the Ted Gaby in the Australian team. Uh, Jim O'Connell did something similar. And just recently, Tom Joyce has done something similar. So yes. it, it it's not necessarily, the Trans-Tasman is not necessarily just a path for a great three sheep trawler because there's different aspects and a different type of dogs needed, I believe. So what what is those differences in your opinion? Um well they've still got a head very well. They've still got to be but they need a bit more strength and power. Um I think they also like in the three, just the normal three sheep trials, I call them the top and tail dogs. They, they, they start at the, you know, at the tail and the sheep break and they run out and around and they stop in front of the head. And they can they can run clean of their sheep. They go from the, the tail to the head. Uh, whereas the, the trans-Tasman dogs that I've had, they impart pressure on the sheep like full circle. So they are, they are running on that spot and that's they've got a grip of their sheep and so that's how come that that's how they can drive so well because they're not like they're putting weight on their sheep whether it's on the run or the ribs or the shoulder or the head whereas the the um yeah as i said the the other type of dog is um you know he's he's pushing at the tail until they gallop and then he's running around and blocking at the head but it's alleviating pressure. Not, yeah, not steering, not steering, and then and then you got to add the throw in the the factor of the man as well, and yep. and the man's got to match the dog, I believe. As um, I I select stronger dogs because I'm a big bloke, <laughs> and I need a strong dog to push up against me. If I'm at the Maltese Cross or whatever, I want to stand right next to it. I don't want to leave a gap. And so I need a dog that's going to shove sheep right up to my mm -hmm. toes. Yeah. If you step back, you leave a gap, and the sheep can break past you. Yep. So, yeah. 
And, and liking those dogs with that bit more strength, and you said you'd rather put the bend in dog rather than have a dog that's nice and arky. How do you go about putting the bend in your in those straighter dogs? Um, starts uh, just a, for a young pup. I probably wouldn't try and push them out till they're at least two years old and going pretty well. Um, you sort of uh, just go with them for a lot of time and just be happy they're working. And then, you know, like then I, I sort of uh, do a little bit of rope rope work, a little bit of dry training, um, just push them back, push them out to use whatever's available. We have a lot of limestone rocks that you don't hit the dog with them. Don't, yep. don't, I'm not hitting the dog, but you throw between the dog and the... Yeah, claim, claim that space a bit, yeah. yep. And we have a lot of clay, um, little clay uh, balls, I suppose, or like the ground, pick up a little clod, that's what it's called, a clod, and you throw that at the dog and it hits the ground and sprays dirt in its face and whatever, and it, you just keep pushing it off, give it a command, um, try and, uh, yeah, put a, a an arc in it like that, and that... Uh, but yeah, you've got to keep them keen for a start. And yeah. once they are, are sold on the idea, you got to admit, like, admit that for, I don't know, for the first up till probably four years old, you you might have a good run. They might get up the sheep and and have a bit of a rough one. So. But uh, yeah, it's all about the long journey for me. Like, you want to. You want to win the novice when the dog's two years old, or do you want to win the open when it from the time from the ages four till ten? Yeah. So for you then, what boxes do they need to be ticking for you to keep them until they're two to then start start with that sort of further training? Um. Well, they got they got to be going to the head and not stopping shorts, number one. You first get them on there, you know, do a little bit of fence work. If they want to, they, they just want to power through between the sheep and the fence, that's, I'm happy with that. They want to avoid the issue, you know, pull back, whatever. Um, I've culled every dog I've, that's turned tailed for 20 years. I can't stand it. Um, that's, that's just a big indicator to me that the dog's not either right in the head or... All right. I mean, I've heard people say, oh, you can train them out of it and that sort of thing, but that gets back to the breeding issue. I, I don't want to train them out of it because I might decide they're a good dog and then I might breed from them. Mm -hmm. So I and just... you get to see that thin nerve come through again. Yeah, yeah, it all, all comes again, you see. So I just, I, I just think um, when... Well, one of the things I thought of the other day that... Uh, Every state in Australia, their judges uh, point turntailing, and yet it's the only dog fault that some states do. Some dogs states say, "Oh, we don't penalise the dogs. We won't penalise the dogs. We don't judge the dogs. We only judge the result." And yet, turntailing is a just a dog thing, and everyone pings a turntail. Those old fellows a hundred years ago started pinging turntails because. <laughs> It, it was an indicator to me. It's a, it's more than just being not able to stand up. It's more an indicator to the of the brain, 
Um, I had one that a dog that I could not pull off balance no matter how I tried and I worked and worked and worked and I was at a trial and I finally got it to take two steps off balance and I thought you beauty and the sheep bolted and that dog turned tailed all the way down the ground and I went home and <laughs> it was on the market the next day. <laughs> If someone wants a dog that turn tails and can get them out of it, good luck to them, but I'm not interested. Yeah, yeah. You're always going to see it pop up again. Yeah, and good on you sticking to, to your own beliefs as well. That's, that's good. Oh, something I, with the sheep, like growing fine wool sheep, you get a fault. You can you can see it coming through. Um, I wish I wish now, like I'm 53, but I wish now when I was 25, I wish I culled harder, harder on my sheep. I wish I culled everything harder when I was younger. Like I still see faults coming through of things. We we carry taggers when we lamb. We have to pull a lamb. We tag them. We if we do pull a lamb, we put them in a ring of mesh. The dogs catch them. Um, Baz and Lady are pretty good at that. Um, but we put them in a ring of mesh for a day so that the mum they can mother up because merino mums are terrible. And uh, I've had a couple that you go back a day later and you lift the mesh up and they just stick their head up and run away from this lamb. And we I just put the dogs on them again and put a tag in them and they go. Yeah, you just got to cull hard. The more the more you cull, the better off you are. Yeah. I think. Oh, I've actually never heard of that method. No, Eli's. Yeah. So you're literally just putting like a like a, I'm just imagining like a, a ring of um, mesh around. So you give them like what a, a meter or two, a couple, of, uh, just so they can't get away from the lamb, right? That's right. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Merino. As soon as you interfere with a merino oh, yeah. lamb in time, she'll take off. You see, yeah, and just never come back for the lamb. That's the end of it. So sort of, we gave a little buggy. I call it a side by side, and I'll go around the using lambs with two dogs, Baz and Lady or one of the others, and you just sort of, there's one with having trouble, cut it out a bit with the buggy. They know what's going on. Yeah. They're hanging on the side. You just give them the command and round they go. And they just block. They don't drag them to the ground or anything like that. They just, with strength, they just hold them and block them. And then you just walk up beyond and grab the U. And, and uh, sometimes I've got to tie its feet or whatever and go, across the paddock and get a ring of mesh. We have one or two in the paddock sitting there. Yeah. It's about, oh, I'll be two metres in diameter. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, then make sure that's over top before it gets up after you've pulled the lamp. <laughs> but, yeah, if I've got a, if I've got a help, well, I'll only, I'll give them one, one help, especially a maiden you, but I always yeah. tag them to make sure. But, yeah, if... If it happens again, look out. <laughs> yeah, that, that's actually I've never ever come across that thought. That's actually a really good idea, and and I hundred percent get understand why why they get become a colour as well, right? You can't just keep that up; it's just inefficient. That's right. Yep. Yeah. So we're we're probably uh, marking hundred and twenty five, hundred and thirty percent of uh, lambs out of nineteen micron fine wool use. So the ewes are quite good, good bit of South Australian blood in them. So they're not like they'll be about eighty kilos. Yeah, yeah. 
So for someone that probably doesn't fully understand why you're culling them, is that because nine times out of ten their progeny will have the same issue, lambing and stuff? Yeah, well, it carries through. That Yeah, it carries through, I'm, I'm sure of that. So, you know, we, we've even got to the point now we've, We've, in the last 10 years, since there's been Dony sheep around and all these other breeds, I think a few might have found their way through into the stud rams, I'm not sure. But there's a temperament in the sheep, in Merinos I'm saying, that, uh, you know, like you might get one out of 100 or one out of 300, but this you will see you come in the gate at lambing time, you'll stick her head in the air and she'll run full tilt the other direction. And, uh, of course, merino sheep being merino sheep, all the other ewes take off after her and they all and then all of a sudden you've got all this mismothering and everything and mm-hmm. we're even catching those ones with the dogs and getting rid of them yeah. as well because, they're, like, they're, like one lamb out of a ewe like that <laughs> compared to the damage of mismothering is you just yeah. don't want it. You know, yeah, we're all products of uh, our DNA and our genetics, right? Yeah, well, that's right. Yeah, and then, like, like you said, then you relate that back to your dogs, those dogs that are tail turning within you, you know, yep, you can train it out beautiful, but then the progeny, well, you're gonna have to deal with the same issue again and start to keep training. Well, you got the potential of that happening, that's right. And it's, I've seen a lot in the breeding, I like, I don't mind looking at pedigrees and dogs and of course, but I've seen a lot where people have, it's a bit of a trap that my dog won the national and your dog won the Supreme. Next time they come in season, we'll mate them. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. you, you got to really look at the, the type and try and work out what's going to suit your, your dog, you know, like, um, or probably a bit, a bit the as and ladies litter I, going to Wandara Snap was a I needed an outcross. I was too I thought I was too tied up and I needed an outcross. Yeah. Um Mick Mick had done pretty well with him. Um I saw him work down at Tasmania. He blocked the sheep seven times from coming out of the bridge, which impressed me pretty well. He he was probably a little bit better feely dog, feeling dog than what I had. So I just, you know, I thought, well, that that was a bit of an improvement. You know, put a bit of feel into what I had and still had strengths or good good blocking strengths. And, uh, yeah, so that's what I did. It seemed to work. As like, you mentioned, like, some, like, really, like, knowledgeable names earlier um, or throughout our chat, has there been a dog that you've seen around the traps in your time and going, geez, I'd love to own that dog? Alive now or? Oh, whenever. Both. Oh, oh, I would uh, I would have loved to have uh, Christie's polar that Doug, Doug Connor had. That was the, Connie's father. Like, she, he was an awesome dog. He, Doug and uh, oh, Ivan Solomon. Stopped into Karunda. Like Karunda's a very hot place in the Mallee. It was about 40 degrees. We were having a trial. It was on sand. The dogs could hardly stand on the hot sand. 
Um, nobody could get South Australia's got pretty narrow obstacles, and these sheep, Mallee sheep, were just mad. And nobody could get two obstacles or hold them on the ground. And Polar came out, and Doug roared and carried on as he always did. And Polar ignored him half the time, and he just gripped these sheep so tight. And he put them in the pen twice. Nobody could get anywhere near him on these mad sheep. He was just, I thought he was an awesome dog, and that's why I wanted a dog by him. So. Yeah. Yeah, I think that that dog, that dog was probably one that I'd definitely line up for. And you mentioned before, like live or dead. Like, is there one around now that you're like, oh, I'd love to have have that in my paddock? Um, you can say your own. <laughs> no, I haven't I haven't seen anything of late just yet. But uh, I keep looking. I keep looking. Um, yeah, um, there'll be something will pop up. They cut the pedigrees are so so deep, you know. Like something comes yeah. up from five generations ago, and you go, "Oh, look at that! That's awesome!" In like so, it's just no, a matter of, of keep keep looking. I think it's a never-ending search, and once once you get a good one, you you're forever looking for one the same, if not better. Uh, yeah, yeah. It, you made a comment a bit earlier how you love watching the novice as much as you do the open, and I, I'm yeah. very similar like that. And um, for people that out there that might not understand that comment, I'm expect I'm I'm expecting that you're relating to because they're less touched. Yeah, seeing more of that yeah. dog. You see, see the natural dog. You see the natural dog there. If you, if you see a dog that's been polished, you know, like some some people might have. Their lifestyle might mean that they can work their dog every day or one, three times a week or or whatever. But, you know, like that, the more the more that's interfered, the more you've got a question now, is that the dog or is that the bloke, what the bloke did? Because there's some great trainers out there and there's some great dogs. And, uh, you know, but is the great trainer making the, the dog look great? Or is the is the is the trainer interfering or making a good dog look worse as well? You yeah. can have that happen too. So. Yeah. What what is it about three sheep trialing that's kept you in the sport for so long? Especially as a young fella, like you don't see too many young people out out having a go of it, especially with the time off and everything. What is it that's kept you around then? Oh, just sheer luck, I think. I'm not the uh, the passionate trialer that it would appear. Like, I, I didn't ever set out to be a sheep, sheepdog trialer. Like, I just, I got a dog off bred by Gavin and Joe Flavel. Um, and as a farm dog, as a replacement to my first dog, because... Milton, my brother, had been in trialling 10 years before. And he said, oh, this litter's coming up. That'll be a good one for you. And I said, does it back? <laughs> yes. Yeah, the mother backs. Um, the mother was bred by Tony McCallum. Uh, yeah, Tony McCallum, is it? Anyway, fellow up in Queensland now. But um, an, an alibi dog it was. Alibi Meg was the mother. 
And uh, yeah, I said, does it back? Yes. I said, is it what all awful colour is it? No, you can have a black and white one. I want. I said, well, I want a well marked bitch or whatever. And that was my things, and that was Amadeus Pell who represented Australia twice. So, but I just um, I. They were having a dog day. They said, bring that dog along. Gavin wants to see whether it's any good or not. And he came up to me and said, if you don't try and trial that dog, it's a waste. So I had to go up the Pascoville Farmers trial and won a novice, second in the open. And didn't do much for another six or eight months. Then had another go at another trial and sort of did all right at the novice. Crooned a sheep fair, I went along on a 45 degree day and won three sheep and yard novice with her. And uh, yeah, went to the, trained like crazy after shearing every night, the most I've ever trained a dog, because I'd <laughs> landed in this thing called the Ted Gaby Challenge and I didn't want to embarrass myself. So. <laughs> that, How many years ago was that, Steph, when you started? Um, Started in 95, uh, 99 at Benalla was when I got into the Australian team. We represented it in 2000. Yeah. yeah. 2000, 2001 with Pearl. And then Connie again in 07, 08, and 11 and 12, I think. So, uh, so not, not far off 30 years now. Yeah, it's 27 years. Yeah, yeah that's, that's a long time to be dedicated to a sport, <laughs> like or well, hobby as well, right? Like that's fantastic, and especially like you mentioned, like you got around to nearly every supreme that you since you've been yeah. Like, well, that, the credit of that goes to Ben Dinning at the first supreme I was at. He said, and Simone and I were we were married. We were thirty years married yesterday. Um, Congratulations, mate. We were married. We were 23 and 20, so we were married young, but we didn't have kids. Didn't think we could afford kids until we were about <laughs> 30. Um, but Ben actually come up and said, if I was you, I would go and buy a caravan and make the Supreme Annual Holiday off your farm, away from the farm. And I think we've only missed three Supremes since. So the kids are growing up travelling, you know, like Melanie made the comment the other day she went somewhere from with some mates and they went three or four hours drive and she said dad i couldn't cope <laughs> i said why is that she said they've never been traveling with you <laughs> we, we got we filled up with fuel we drove for about an hour then they had to stop for a pee then we drove <laughs> another hour that. and yeah apparently that's well known in the family that when you stop for petrol you stop to pee and you get as much food as you can. Dad's not going to stop until the petrol. What is it that keeps you trialing, mate, after so long? What what's what keeps the fire going? Um, it's definitely, it's not the trophies. It's not the money because there's not much in it, <laughs> especially in South Australia. Um, the... The best way I could I ever heard it put for me was a cricket analogy from Matthew Hayden. He was asked what it was like to be up the other end when Adam Gilchrist was in full flight, and he said he had the best seat in the house. 
And I I think for me that that's what uh, puts chills up my spine is that sometimes you're out there watching those your dogs work, especially when you're bred, and you, you sort of stop working and go, oh, how awesome was that to see what that dog did? You know, like it, it's a bit that that that's what really gets me going. I think. And, you know? and just off that that there, like. Hados could hit a ball, right? So it's pretty humble for a bloke of that caliber to sit back and say that for Gilly. Yeah. And then, like, like you are, he could hit a ball. He was an absolute cracking open opening batsman. But then for you to sit back of someone that has so much experience and still sit back and watch that dog and do that, that's pretty humble of yourself as well. Like, that's pretty cool. Hmm. Oh, well, it, it, yeah, I think that's what sets me alight. I mean, I go... And I'd like I like to win. I like to represent Australia. I like the Trans Tasman. It was it's a course made for me, sort of, if you know what I mean. Like it, I've always felt more comfortable on that course than a, an actual three sheep trial course. So, um, and for people that don't know the difference, what are the differences besides that? Like you've mentioned the cross drive. Yeah. So you um, once you leave the gap, like it's a based on a traditional course, but once like with a gap, a normal course has a gap race bridge pen over in South Australia, different variations, Queensland, New South Wales, but they've all got, um, Western Australia, they've all got similar sort of obstacles and a corridor that you walk your sheep or you pull your sheep along basically. So they come on inside that corridor and the Trans-Tasman have replaced the middle two sections with to New Zealand section so that once you leave the gap, you must walk through it and then drive your sheep to the Maltese and negotiate a Maltese cross. So that's like a big plus sign. So they've got to go in one way and then around and out and through the other way. Then you drive up to the bridge as well. And uh, when you've got a, the drives are, the challenging part for some people because you've not only got to work your dog, you've got to work yourself at the same time. So you've got to, while your dog's putting pressure on the sheep, you've got to be putting pressure on as well. So, mm -hmm. it, um, and that comes back to blokes standing in stockyards or whatever. You're like, no one's, no one in a hurry in the shearing shed stands in a tire holding the gate saying, come on, dog, hurry up. You know, like you get in and help your dog. And your dog appreciates being helped. Uh, and uh, for my dogs, every time they start doing a few trans Tasmans, they uh, almost grow an extra leg. They can, like, they it puts an extra twenty percent onto them mm -hmm. for for normal driving. So it's just like it's it's the being able to drive and force and work off balance and. And, and put that pressure, that sideways pressure on sheep helps your obstacle and all that sort of thing. Yeah, beautiful. How, um, you mentioned like representing Australia a stack of times now. Um, last year, you actually captained Australia. Was that your first time captaining or? Uh, second, second, second. Time. Yeah. And was it any different the second time than it was the first? Uh, yeah, the, the, the second time, like this last time was, um, I won't say easier or better or anything like that, but the 
the three other members that went to New Zealand had never been in the Australian team before. So they were all new. So they were all keen to listen and learn and asking questions and all that sort of thing. So um, I think I think we did pretty well considering. Um, would have liked to have won, but that's a bit hard, pretty hard in New Zealand. Um, but yeah, no, like everyone was trying their best and they were trying to learn and and do as well as they could and. I just, I think, I, I think as a side issue for that, I think there's got to be more education on trans-Tasman courses mm-hmm. for, so that there's a, a, more people know how to do it. Um, we started in South Australia about five or six years ago, running one, maybe two a year, which is, we only have like nine or 10 trials a year, eight or 10. So we're running, two Trans-Tasmans. Um, I think the results have shown in the last four or five years that we've had five Australian rep guys guys picked in the Australian team, five out of the possible six in the last three runoffs. So it just means that um, because at a local trial, you go out onto the Trans-Tasman course, you run every dog your own, whether it's good, bad, indifferent, whether it's novice or whatever, and that's that's when you learn how to how, how to do it, where to stand, what to be. And and I just think we New Zealand now uh, they they are running quite a few Trans-Tasman courses as well, trying to build their knowledge. And I think there was a few reluctant in South Australia. When it first started, uh, didn't want to do a trans-Tasman, don't care, didn't want to learn about it, but pretty much throw a blanket over everybody. If if they got a dog good enough and they got in the Ted Gaby Challenge, they'd be a threat because the course is not unnatural to them anymore. They're not going, oh, what's this Maltese cross thing? How do we drive? You know, what do we do there? Because uh, they've all done it. They've all had multiple runs on it. So, yeah, I think that's one thing that we could look at. I was actually going to ask, like, if you could change one thing about trialling or, or threshold trial, what would it be? But rather than change something, you'd actually recommend maybe running more trans-Tasmans? Well, I think if we're serious about uh, beating New Zealand, um, they, they've got the wood on us at the moment. We, we were... But it's happened before. When I first started, I'm pretty sure New Zealand were six or seven wins ahead of us, and then we had a bit of a purple patch. And uh, you know, Malcolm Taylor had two or three good dogs there for a bit, and Ivan Solomon had two, and Jim had Jim O'Connell had Lefty, and Paul O'Kane had Yvonne Goolagong. Like there were some pretty handy dogs that come through in that period, and we sort of caught up with them again. And yeah, now we we've been beaten quite a few times. So it's funny how beaten. sports works against New Zealand, right? Like you mentioned that, but then you look at like rugby league, for example, where like we used to smash them, and then they come through for a few years, and we just we couldn't beat them. And then now, like you just changed, like between Australia and New Zealand, just there's just this competitive edge, and it doesn't matter what sport it is. Yeah, it ebbs and flows a bit, you know. Like and that, you know, it can just come down to the 
not a fluke, but just what dogs are around at the time or just what handlers are around at the time, you know, like Malcolm Malcolm was a great mate of mine and, and a great competitor um, and we used to push each other a bit. But um, in that Trans-Tasman stuff, like he 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 proved that he, he knew that better than anybody and... Like for him to be run those successive dogs through, that was a great thing for the Australian team. And then you then you just throw in a Greg Prince or a, you know, like Ivan Solomon with that with Jill or Paul O'Kane with Goolagong or or Jim with Lefty and you know, like you just built a team around it and and then someone new would come in and you are sort of only blooding one new one every so often and but there's so much knowledge. You can learn like it's a bit like a, my first time the masters and apprentice um you could just just the way those blokes um went about it and they never sat you down and said you should do this or you need to do that or you need to do that or ordered you about or whatever but it was just just being amongst the company of them to see how they operate is where you picked up picked up so much i think absolutely Paul O'Kane's good at dishing out a few names to his dogs, isn't he? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, he always makes it interesting, Paul does. But yeah. Yeah. No, there's but yeah, she was a, a very good dog, Yvonne Gulagong. I've seen her do some magnificent work. Yeah. Um Yeah, that uh what is he? They're all tennis players or whatever. They got three names, haven't they? Well sports people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or someone famous. Yeah. Yeah. Man, someone that's um come up like had a family farm for so long still relies heavily on their farm. Um and like, on their family, sorry, to uh, to manage the farm. Um and we all know like we're in a labor shortage. Man, what advice would you give to someone out there that wanted to crack or over a start in the um agricultural sector? Um, just have a go. I think that's about like the, it wasn't easy. There was plenty of people who told me that I should stay at school and uh, it really grates me, but they would say you were too smart to be a farmer. You should go and do this or you should do that. I can remember when I started year one, I had it already worked out how long it, I had to endure school until I could <laughs> come back home on the farm. So, you know, like, it's just it's been my passion um if if you really want to have a go i know it seems tough um it seems nearly out of reach but it always did seem nearly out of reach and you know like if someone someone gives you a little bit of a hand or whatever into something there there will be opportunities come and just if the door's open just to crack stick your foot in it and and pushing and have a go like you, you have a go at anything because you're dead a long time that's what i think you know like if, if there's an opportunity just just have a go what the worst case scenario is um it doesn't work out the the worst thing worse than that i would think would be to say gee i wish i did such and such or gee i, I should have took that on i mean just have a go i think and on, on from that, is there anyone you'd like to see us sit down and have a chat with on Dog Talk? Hmm. Well, 
I wouldn't mind seeing uh, Grant Cook from Western Australia have a chat. He's uh, he's a uh, yeah. What would you say? Grant can be a little bit aloof, <laughs> and he'll ring me up and abuse me now for saying this. <laughs> he, he likes to be a bit like that, but he like him. Him and his brother they run a big family farm over there, and up until the debacle of Western Australia's sheep, I think they were up to about five thousand sheep, and he runs all his trial dogs on his farm as well. So you know, like there's. A few of us around silly enough to think that we can do both. Um, the West Australian dogs I have a lot of time for because they um, they run a yard and utility section in amongst their trialling, so their dogs are quite versatile. Mm -hmm. I was going to say they they and look, seeing videos of Grant's dogs myself, they have to align with like your your morals as, as well, and like what you like. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's he's a bit the same. He, thinks a dog should uh, work on the farm and go to trials. So we're either both mad or <laughs> I'm, we're under something. <laughs> it seems and to be working for both of you, so. And, and I don't mean to be rude, but I hope he does ring you and give you a mouthful. That way you can, can convince him to get on and have a yarn with us. Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll yeah, go have a yarn with him, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'll probably get a text in a minute, actually. <laughs> Beautiful. Get into him, mate. Send him the way. Um, one last question as always. Would you rather fight one duck the size of a horse or 20 horses the size of ducks and why? No, I'm pretty slow. I can't run very fast, so I'll just take the one duck the size of a horse. <laughs> no, that's all right. I'll be a pretty big one. Well, I was going to say, but... your height would come in handy there. Yeah, I'd nearly match him, I reckon. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, thank you very much for your time tonight. Um, really appreciate it. Um, also, I would love to um, really thank Enduro, Pine G Food for working dogs with Real Kangaroo Meat, um, for jumping on board for their third consecutive year of um, supporting um, Dog Talk. Um, that's a great effort from um, Paul and his team. So thank you very much. Um, Stephen, thank you very much for your time. To everyone else um, that um, listened tonight or is listening back, thank you very much for listening. And please remember, we learn every day. And the day we stop learning for each other will be a sad one. Thank you. No worries. Thanks, mate. See ya.